Welcome back to another episode of the Claim of Throne Blodgecast. This is episode 89, and today I am flying solo. Cabba has gone down south to drop off his puppy just before he heads over to Las Vegas for one Jim Puppy Parker's wedding, which I'll also be going to, but I'm going a week later than Cabba. I think he's going to be spending some time in other states in America, maybe Colorado or something. But uh, yeah, I'll talk to him next time about that. He uh, is going to be trying to make it on over this weekend if he can Skype me from down south, but that's uh, not exactly a definite yet. So we'll see. You might hear his beautiful voice. But yeah, there will be a few weeks of downtime with the Claim of Throne Blodge, so I'll try and do as much as I can in the meantime. Anyway, so I thought I'd take this opportunity to talk a little bit about the recording of the album on Desolate Plains. Uh, we announced a couple of weeks ago that the album would be coming out on the 13th of October. That still stands. Uh, but yeah, just to, I guess, juice you up on it and maybe talk about some of the songs you've heard, uh, including Mantra already as a film clip. And if any of you attended the listening party at 459 Bar on Wednesday... On Sleet Hatswell, Ryan Smith, among many others, or not that many others actually, that uh, checked out the film clip to a song called Spirit of Fire, which had a working title of Dreams because it's about dreaming about something. Um, yeah, this is to talk about those a little bit and maybe a bit more of what you can expect from the album. So I'm not really sure where to start. I guess I'll talk briefly about the lead up to the album. One thing we did and as in the spirit of practicing what we preach is to make guitar profiles which everyone learnt on guitar or at least in my case and in the case of Jesse referenced in terms of how the songs were structured and maybe what notes were going on or perhaps what feel what pulse uh, double or triple kind of pulse it was and yeah got together rented a room at the hen house in Osborne park for a whole month we blocked out a month and left all our gear there and then every day one of us two of us all of us would rock up there and either let's say if it was just me i'd rock up and work on some things i was struggling on perhaps or think of some ideas for certain fills or parts and get more of a sense of an overall feeling of what the drumming would be doing on the album rather than on Forged in Flame where the drums were kind of written via programmed drumming. So yeah, that's that's a bit odd. I think the songs on Forged in Flame developed a little bit more in the live setting after we'd actually recorded the album, which is a bit of a shame because there are a few things I do live all the time on those songs that I wish I did on the album. So anyway, that was the sort of impetus for me to yeah take a different approach this time around a more traditional approach for me uh but yeah we also you know ran through the album top to bottom so every album that you do uh sorry every song you do here on the album uh at one point we could play it start to finish as a band and that was really important because another thing we learned from forged in flame was that we were doing a lot of part by part stuff because like i said for instance in my case i programmed all of my drums in the writing phase so then when I went to record them I wasn't really too crash hot on a lot of the transitions so yep for me I'd go in and record as much as I could that was a bit of a crazy session actually 
and then I'd I'd punch in when I'd you know lose my way or forget where I was going, and as a result, I actually left out some parts because you know I wasn't familiar enough, and yeah, had to sort of copy and paste sections from other songs to make certain songs finish. Um, primary example of that is the song Serpent and the Star, I think it's called. And at the end, there's kind of like a skank beat, thrash beat thing. And that was originally supposed to be a groovier sort of triplet feel, double paradiddle feel kind of section. But I left it out completely. So I grabbed that thrash part from another song and pasted it in. Anyway, I didn't want any of that happening this time. So we all got very familiar with the songs, made some good guide tracks, got used to playing along to them and to the click tracks and went into Studio Underground in Burragoon. I reckon it was about April. I think we were scheduled... Well, initially we were scheduled for Electric City Studios with Al Smith in February, but then Electric City closed down. So we got rebooked out at Underground again with Al. And yeah, just scheduling stuff and Easter and blah, blah, blah. I think it ended up being early April. Anyway, that was a three-day session. We got in there on the first day, sort of placed the drum kit in the room, spent a lot of time figuring out, firstly, which drums we were going to use. There's a lot of kits at, uh, sorry, at Underground. Uh, and the one we picked is Brody, who owns the place. It's his Sonor kit. Really nice kit and have no idea what model it was, but yeah, pretty awesome. Really super thick-shelled kick drum and floor tom so we pinched that set it up in the room where we felt the kick had the most low end and then set up the kit around that so yeah my for some reason my yamaha maple custom just wasn't cutting the mustard i've used that on every recording i've ever done uh the kick and the floor tom have always been fine but i think this time maybe I suspect it's because I chose single ply heads and I never usually do. I usually use a double ply head and sometimes I've even used double plies with reinforcement rings or the muffling rings by Evans. I think they're EC2s. Anyway, so yeah, I used Remo Ambassadors. I was really trying to get tone out of the shells and I'm not that great at tuning. So yeah, I was getting this kind of basketball sounding thing you know when you bounce a basketball the sound it makes especially on wood that's what I felt the kick and the tom sounded like and also a bit too growly so yep switched them out but used my rack toms from my Yamaha and my Yamaha brass seamless snare that's pretty old it's 2003 model bargains with ash got it off ebay for 400 bucks it was like the best thing I have bought in a while that is a 14 by six and a half Pretty cool. Really liked having a metal snare on this one. Everything else has been my maple custom snare drum. And I feel that that's doesn't quite cut through with the metal so much. It's fine in the more open sections, but it doesn't, it doesn't allow for cutting through of like lower articulation stuff, ghost notes, and even on blasting where just by virtue of the fact that you're blasting can't quite hit as hard as you would if you're rimshotting in a... Um, in like a slower section anyway so that was the kit and then in terms other stuff i used i used my dw5000 pedals which i love i went back to them uh, one thing i've noticed recently actually is that the last time i had a pair of them i had the turbo cams 
Whereas now I've got the accelerator cams and I didn't even think about that when I was buying it. And I don't like the accelerators as much. I feel that it's like a weird articulation when you're playing and it doesn't quite coincide. Like I'm struggling to do very basic single kick stuff that, you know, was my bread and butter when I was learning to play. Uh, but it's it feels like it's enhancing my double kicks a little bit. Anyway, it's neither here nor there. It's pretty nerdy, but I'm going to go back to turbo cams. So look that up if you're a drummer and you care. Anyway, I use Danmar wood beaters this time as well. Again, for a little bit of extra click on the bass drum. Whereas in the past, I've used felt beaters and they're decent for low end, but they don't allow the kicks to cut through, especially on metal. That's a big deal. Uh, for cymbals, I used all of my Piesty cymbals. Uh, so mostly Crashes, uh, 2002s, China. Usually is a 2002, but I broke that. So I used a Piesty 20 series, which is a bit darker, a bit more weird sounding. Sounds almost flangy in parts. And the hats and ride are my faithful Danny Carey wannabe Pasty Signature, their dark crisp hi-hats and a dry heavy ride. I love those things. They're really awesome. And I did have an extra crash. It was like a 20-inch signature series full crash. And yeah, you hear that a lot on the album. So yeah, pretty stripped back, five-piece kit, uh, three crashes, one China, ride and hats. So yeah, a lot more stripped back than what I would normally record with. But that was deliberate to allow me to set up the cymbals off the toms a lot more to allow the overheads to pick them up and, you know, and to try and stop a bit of bleed in the tom mics. I'm not sure if that worked or not. But, yeah, the whole approach with the drumming was to get the best organic sound I possibly could and try and avoid triggering or doing any sample blending so much because there was too much grid editing on Forged in Flame. Um, there are a number of reasons for that which I can't be bothered going into, but yeah, that was partly to do with preparedness and partly to do with the fact that it was my first time tracking, I guess. And yeah, we'd recorded guitars to a click and then when I put the drums on and they got a lot of natural swing to them, it sounded weird. But yeah, this time around, I wanted an extremely natural and organic performance. So... That's what we did. I think we achieved it pretty well. I did as much of the parts as a full take as I could um, and then just punched in, let's say, where I blew a fill or maybe, you know, forgot exactly the groove or missed something that I felt was important. But I tried not to do punch-ins where possible and I tried to really focus on my playing. Um... Yeah, so anyway, that was the session. It was pretty good. In terms of the mics, I guess um, used 57 on the top snare, some sort of condenser on the bottom. Uh, Sennheiser 421s on the rack toms, SM7 or SM7B on the floor tom. Overheads were shotgun mics with Omni capsules. That was something that Al was experimenting with and I quite enjoyed it actually. Uh, we also had... Can't remember if we had a hi-hat mic. I don't think we did. Then kick drum was actually a Sennheiser 421 also inside and some sort of a kick drum mic. I don't remember what it was. And then a few room mics, 
there was a pair of 414s split. I think one sort of forward of the kit and one to the side as kind of a stereo pair. Um, and then also there was a, like a big stereo ribbon that was right over the top of the kit um, that, yeah, Underground had there and it was pretty awesome. So we use that. Anyway, once again, we finished the tracking. It was all good. Sounded great. Got the right sounds. That was it. Uh, moved on to some guitars next. Guitars, again, we learned from Forged in Flame. We wanted more of, let's say, the rhythm tracks to be played as much start to finish as we could just to keep the vibe. But also this time, because we weren't just recording all the guitars to a click first, uh, I was trying to turn the click off except for count-ins and recording to the performance of the drumming, which does push and pull with the click a fair bit. Um, the only real edits are punch-ins for the most part. There's a bit of finagling here and there where, you know, we didn't quite capture something that I wanted. So, yeah, anyway, pretty natural dynamic performance for the guitars to track to. And, yeah, for the most part, that did go like that. The only places where it didn't was maybe when a different style of playing or maybe a different guitar would be used for a different part. Or perhaps there was like an ultra challenging section. Um, we might have just punched in there. An example of that, best example would probably be on Desolate Plains where the start of it, you, you hear it at the start of this podcast actually, from the pits of hell or whatever. That little trend bit going into that riff is quite challenging. So we, we did that in one hit and then the next bit in one hit and then got into the groovier parts and sort of played on throughout them. So, yeah, pretty much whoever could play the part the best got the job for that section. And, yeah, rhythms went pretty good. We mostly used Dyson's, I think it's called a Hex uh, guitar. It's a LTD made by ESP. It's the Nurgle model, Nurgle from Behemoth. It's pretty cool. It's got a neck through mahogany neck and body, and it's got active EMGs. And yeah, a lot of sustain on it. It's a pretty cool guitar. So, And oddly ergonomic to play, I find. I think it's pretty awesome. Nicely balanced. You sit it in an interesting way, being a V in your leg. It's Yeah, it's quite comfortable. So did a lot of the tracking of the rhythms on that. Just one each side. We didn't do any like quad tracking, just a plain old double, one left, one right, uh, which is pretty important for us because we do a lot of uh, harmonies and stuff the guitar parts are usually different left and right for the most part um some other guitars did pop up i used the hawkins made by mark hawkins who was on the podcast last week hawkins 7 on a couple of tracks uh for rhythm guitars and on one of the tracks for just every single guitar that's it's called uh my dying throws it's sort of a bit more of a van halen homage at the start and goes into whatever the hell it goes into. So that guitar was really cool to use. Also a Paul Gilbert signature six-string Ibanez made an appearance, doing some rhythms and spotting in some leads every so often, uh, as did Cabba's LTD Explorer-style ESP guitar that did a couple of leads and a few little things. So yeah, anyway, that's some guitar nerdery. Um, but that was all DI. And the reason we did that is because we wanted to choose a tone and reamp. It's something we tried to do on Forged in Flame, but it didn't quite work. 
Uh, this time I'd done a fair bit of sort of practicing, I guess, in terms of reamping before we got to the session. And um, yeah, I'll get to that in a little bit. Uh, bass was done in the same way, mostly using a Fender four string passive uh, P bass with just a set of passive Bartolini P style pickups in it. That was really awesome. I think that went actually quite well. I uh, got it set up and new strings put on it. And I found out later that the strings, I thought they were a bit, you know, the tension wasn't quite right. And I definitely think they're actually standard gauge, even though we had requested them be tuned to B standard. Anyway, so a bit, yeah, a bit annoying about the bass, but we still got a pretty good sound with it. And I found the DIs to be nice and clear. And again, yeah, we did stuff with that in the mix. Um, and that was partially Jim, Jim laid most of the tracks with fingers. That's his style. And then there are a few tracks that, um, you know, maybe were written later in the game where like Cabba might do sections of it or do whole parts with a pick. So if you do notice little differences in the bass, it's probably because of that. Um, keyboards were done all via Jesse's Korg digital piano. That's really cool. That's something new for her since the last album. It's more of a weighted key setup. It's got a really good feel to it. Um, she did have a weighted piano on the last album, but she'd upgraded to the Korg and preferred it a lot better, it, despite the fact that it's missing one octave, whereas the Yamaha was like a full 88 key. I think this is 77, I guess, whatever, 76, I don't know, what the hell. Missing one octave from a full-size piano, but she may do. And with that, we, I guess you'd call it DI, we took all the MIDI from that. And Jessie's a great player, so she generally will play, let's say it's a piano part, she'll play as much of the song as possible because piano, unlike guitar, uh, you know, is just one sound. So she'll play as much as she can, a bit like with the drums and the bass, and then just, just punch in if she missed a part or wanted to add something. Uh, but yeah, we only took the MIDI information, which tracks her performance, but not any of the sound. And we used learning from a mistake I made on the last album where we were trying to monitor a sample pack of piano. It kept cutting out. It was a bit too much for the computer, especially at low latency doing the software uh, monitoring. So we just took a feed from her actual piano with a piano sound and just used it for monitoring purposes. And yeah, that took a lot of the weight off the computer's processing power and allowed us to yeah listen back to an actual piano sound and another thing i learned from the last time was i was kind of daisy chaining between two tracks of midi so if jesse would punch in i'd set a new track going because what was happening is when i'd try and punch in it was deleting previous material or it was adding to it anyway i figured out the midi merge uh, function on pro tools and turned it off yeah that's what i did so then when you punch in uh, it doesn't delete anything beforehand or doesn't keep what was originally there. That's actually what was happening. Um, anyway, there wasn't a hell of a lot of punching in this time because because of what happened last time, she just got used to doing these entire tracks. So she was really well prepared. Uh, we tracked additional keys. So all the string parts, uh, she did them as well in the same manner. Those are a little bit different because, you know, she might have a cello sound or, you know, to her, on, 
on the listen back, it was just a standard string patch, but we would write down, call the MIDI track cello and she'd play a cello part. And then I would, you know, have to get a cello sound organized after. Then that might only happen for the intro of the song. So that track would just be that much. And then she might jump to like a full orchestra patch for a whole bunch with little fills and licks of, let's say, a violin. So as we were going along, we were taking notes and writing what each track was supposed to represent. Uh, So then just in mix prep, I was able to go and get sounds based on those. So that was cool. I enjoyed doing that. That worked really well. Uh, In terms of vocals, that was something we did some new stuff on. We'd always done that with the vocalist right next to me, like for demos or for Fortune Flame or whatever. Uh, Any recording I'd ever done, actually, is always a vocalist right next to me. Now, that's cool, but when you've got a room full of dudes uh, drinking and on their phones and laughing about shit and chatting and commenting, can be, I reckon it can be a little off-putting. And because, you know, we're just a cruisy band, we don't want to say, like, guys, piss off, go do something else for a while because... I don't know, it's not quite necessary for us. So what I did instead was because I have this Apogee quartet with some additional outputs, I did a mirror of the stereo mix out uh, of outputs three and four, ran that out to a little mixer that I bought a while back, not for this purpose, but I just sort of thought of it last minute. So ran the stereo into there, so headphones could be plugged in in a different room to that mixer and they could adjust their level of the mix and then I ran out of output five a software sort of playthrough of the vocal so then that went to another track and the whoever was singing that part could adjust the level of their own vocal and I find that's always the hardest thing for me is that you know on the I can see that I'm cranking the living shit out of a vocalist and they keep saying, I can't hear myself, I can't hear myself. But as soon as I switch to this method and fully turn the vocal down and they adjusted it themselves, it's like probably coming through at a... It's it's like they're aware of when it's the vocal coming from the headphones and not from their inside their head vocal, you know, if that... I know it's kind of hard to explain, but I think there's a psychological thing going on there and this kind of solved that problem. So, And additionally, it allowed everyone to sit in the room and drink and swear and laugh and do all sorts of stuff and not piss off the vocalist or make them uncomfortable. They could get in their own little world with like a nice dimly lit environment, lava lamp going on just for a bit of a vibe. Could have their lyrics sheet there and move around, you know. I know Cabba likes to have a few beers and sort of act like he's, you know, summoning the gods or whatever. I don't know, just being an idiot. And yeah, I think it helps with performances a lot. So that was pretty cool. Anyway, so most of the tracks, you know, obviously were done by Cabba with a lot of the clean vocals being done by Jesse. But this time Jim did step up Uh, his game from the last album because he did mostly just one style of low vocal last album whereas on this one he did like a two types so it's almost having an extra vocalist where he did a super high thing that frequency in and out you can hear it a lot in mantra 
especially in that blast bit about three quarters through where he says my spirit listen for that it's one of my favorite moments on the album uh, and then a lot of the like, ultra lows so the very first scream that comes in on mantra has cabba with his normal stuff and jim with his really low gutturals so that was really cool he unlike these other guys preferred to do vocals in the room with us uh i think that's you know because he likes hanging out so that was cool um and he's yeah he's less afraid of you know i guess getting into a sort of a a safe environment for vocals he's just happy to be in amongst it it all so yeah that was pretty cool anyway let me sip my tea um have i missed any gear let me think uh i guess going back quickly to the guitars and the bass i did forget to mention that i've got a countryman type 80 shit i don't even know what's called type 10 that's what it is countryman type 10 active di box uh we shot that out against the di that's available in the apogee quartet and honestly, it was quite similar. I mean, maybe there's some stuff I couldn't hear. But in terms of ease, I think we found it easier to just use the Apogee uh, input. Um, then skipping forward to the vocals, uh, I do have some uh, DIY built, like kit built um, preamps by Classic Audio Products of Illinois or Classic API as it's known. Uh, the problem was is that there was the op amps in them were screwing up and putting heaps of distortion on and it wasn't a pleasant style of distortion. So rather than, you know, troubleshooting that and wasting a week or whatever until I fixed it, we decided, look, the quartet went really well for the guitars, DI, so let's just try it with the vocals. Yep, it's cool. So, and I've used it in the past and it was great. So we just decided to go with that. And yeah, all of the dirty vocals you hear, screaming, yelling, whatever, are all the Shaw SM7B, which I'm speaking on right now. And all of the clean vocals were the Rode NT1. Now, on Fortune Flame, we use a Rode Classic, and that was good, but I don't know. I probably should have kept it, but I ended up selling it and buying a few mics, uh, you know, selling one mic and buying two with some mod kits with the hope of getting a stereo pair of a similar sounding microphone. Um, that's another story for another time, but basically they weren't ready to go yet. So, and they still aren't, God damn it. Um, the, so Al Smith from McGurk, who recorded the drums, of course, had told me about this Rode NT1 being, you know, bugger all, 270 bucks and being one of the nicer microphones he's bought recently, especially at that price point. So... Went ahead and bought one of them and we tried it out on vocals and it was really awesome. So we stuck with that. We also used it for acoustic guitar. So in mono and we double track acoustic for the most part. There was not a lot of acoustic on this album compared to previous stuff. But uh, yeah, that featured heavily through the preamps on the Apogee as well. Uh, we also did a bit of classical guitar using Cabba's Ibanez nylon string that he got for his birthday from his parents. That was all right. And also his Maiton. Is it a Maiton or a Martin? I don't know. One of the two. 
uh, acoustic that you can hear on every other Claim of Throne album. Uh, and one interesting part that went down was huddling Jim and Cabba around a figure eight pattern microphone or maybe maybe a stereo pair. I don't... Oh, shit, I don't remember. But yeah, having them around and having them play a part together, like a harmony and maybe it was just tracked in mono and having Jesse sort of conduct them because I didn't have two outputs on my little monitor mixer so I or on my Apogee for that actually yeah that makes sense the lead wouldn't reach from the Apogee so I couldn't have two going so Jesse would wear one and it was sort of this song that she'd wrote and she had a specific way she wanted the guitars to be so she stood there listening to the playback of the song and then kind of conducting the guys and they were getting their timing cues from her so that was pretty interesting um yeah and i think that covers most most of the album anyway um i guess one thing that's kind of obvious that i didn't mention was another guitar that got used was a strat uh, fernandez strat copy pretty old again a bargain with ash off gumtree for 300 odd bucks and that actually opens the album so probably worth mentioning there and that one has effects on it that were pedal based 90% of the guitar effects you hear are from plugins on the album. Um, the effects we're talking here, so delay and reverb. But uh, in this case, we use the Dodd Chorus, Dodd Delay, and Digitech, who I think now own Dodd. Uh, Digitech uh, bloody pedal. Where is it? If I can see it from here. It's got some name. Hardwire. Um, reverb pedal which is pretty cool so it was nice to use some analog effects as well and that was pretty much the tracking it took us from we started besides drums I think we started the guitar tracking on the 26th uh, Anzac Day this year the long weekend which is about probably when we started Forged in Flame on Anzac Day long weekend in 2013 so that was a bit coincidental and went through, I would say, to early October, maybe late September, early October, just tracking on weekends, weeknights, have a week off here because someone's going away, have a week off there because work's busy for a bunch of people and, you know, just took our time, made sure everything was going down. If things weren't working... On the Fortune in Flame approach was to just edit them and get them all happening because we had this weird notion we were in a rush for something. Whereas this time around, if someone wasn't getting the part, we would just say, like, let's say a difficult lead part, we'd go, hey, um, take a week off. Just take a few days off guitar, get some sleep, do some practice, work on whatever section of the solos you're struggling with and we'll come back and track it the week after. So I think that approach went really well. And I, God, I would love that to be the case for drums. But unfortunately, that is not the case for drums. You kind of got to do it all in one hit unless you've got a bigger budget. So yeah, and speaking of guitar solos, a couple of things I missed was we did finally, for the first time ever, have some guests on this album. So the first guest was Dean Arnold from the band Primal Frost and now of Vital Remains. Uh, we toured with Primal Frost, uh, Primal Frost 
in Canada in early 2015 and a few shows in the States. He is awesome and that band is really awesome. And yeah, we became good buddies with them, had him in mind. And I think he just mentioned at one point, we're chatting to him and he said, oh, keep me in mind for a guitar solo. And I said, yeah, we will. And honestly, we'd already been talking about it amongst ourselves. So I didn't have a song in mind or anything cabba didn't i don't think but jesse thought okay i've written this song and i really feel that dean would be awesome on it so we sent him a demo this is really early on and yeah said look at this time on the counter jump in for as many bars as you want you can go for the rest of the song if you want but essentially we want these eight or so bars he did something sent it back what do you think of this and we said perfect and he sent us a di tone and also a tone straight from his axe effects i think it was or maybe i actually fuck, i can't remember what it was i'm thinking it was axe effects but maybe he doesn't even have one of them anyway sent us a, a tone right and i did think about reamping his tones because he said he wasn't sure whether or not the tone he sent was usable but he sent a stereo file with a guitar harmony in the stereo file. And rather, he was busy touring with Vital Remains. So rather than hassle him out to provide me separate tracks, I just literally took the stereo file of tone that he gave us. And that's what appears on the record. So I didn't add anything to it. That's fully engineered, so to speak, by him. The other guest we had was a vocal guest, one John Ryan from Suffering Rot. Bunbury Band, who are a local favourite of the Perth metal community. He has one of the most ruthless voices I've ever heard in my life. Very much a big fan of Corpse Grinder and inspired by him. And in a little package, the guy can bust it out. And I've recorded Suffering Rot a fair bit. And yeah, it's a real sight to behold having him, and sound to behold, having him bust that shit out for real like no effects, distortion and shit on his voice. That's all natural. And again, it was a Jesse song where she said, hey, let's get John in on this one. And yeah, we got him up to Cabba's house, put him in the room, put his little spit mat down and gave him a bottle of honey. And yeah, he busted out a pretty awesome performance on the song Harbinger Scavenger. So <laughs> you can't miss it. Listen out for that one. Very brooding song, very different for him. Um, so yeah, that was really cool. And I think that pretty much wraps up tracking or as much as I can be bothered talking about. Uh, instead of any lengthy editing, fucking gridding process that, you know, might be something that modern metal productions do these days, I pretty much did a mix prep that went like this. I got all the DI tracks of guitar got a tone with Cabba on my Mesa Boogie single rectifier and a kind of a complimentary really mid-focus sound on my orange Jim Root signature model little mini head which honestly isn't really necessary and doesn't add that much to the tone but we chucked it in anyway. Now we reamped out the Apogee into a DIYrecordingequipment.com reamp box and straight into the Mesa, right? Then out of that into a Sur Reactive Load Box, which takes the signal from the amp, because the tube amp it needs to be loaded down. Because we're recording silently, um, we don't have a speaker cabinet. So this takes the load off the amp 
and essentially provides a signal out of there that goes into the Apogee Quartet. Uh, Because I'd done a bit of mucking around with this, I'd realized that there's a latency that occurs. You know, signals that you record out of the Apogee on loopback come back delayed a little bit in time. So what I did, I know there's different ways of tackling this. You can, I think internally in Pro Tools and many recording softwares, you can sort this out. This is a mere setting thing. You can ping, I think you can ping the loop back and it tells you, you know, the latency that the conversion stage from the digital file out into the analog world and back in, it'll tell you in maybe in samples or whatever, how much that is and it will automatically account for that. Since I didn't have that shit sorted, my workaround was to get a stick hit or a click sort of sample put it at the start of the DI track, like well before the actual track starts, like maybe four to eight counts before, and I would have that dead on the grid. So despite where the actual guitar playing would start, because it's not like that happens exactly on the grid, especially because we don't grid edit, um, I could then see when the guitar came back through, because this is the other thing, it's like a DI track it has a lot more dynamics in it. You can see a lot more transient material. Whereas when you pump it through distortion, it compresses the signal. So it's a lot harder to kind of gauge where you're at rhythmically by that. So you couldn't line it up by eye. You'd have to do it by ear and it would never be exactly what it was when it was tracked as a DI, if this is making sense to any person in the world besides me. Anyway, um, so this click allowed me to, you know, go send it through the distortion and then I would put my cursor in front of it, tab to the front of the transient of that click and then pull it back to the grid. So then the DI and the distorted track line up perfectly. Now, why that was a big deal for me is because I was aiming to use the same DI track twice through two different amps. So a lot of people, what they do is actually record two identical rhythm tracks and then send those out independently. So then there's no phasing issues. But we as a band have enough shit going on in our music that I don't necessarily think we need to try and get like two perfect takes going on. That's, I've kind of since changed my tune a little bit on that because I'm experimenting with it. But yeah, to get that many tracks down and quad track it would just take us so damn long. So the workaround for that is to do this little transient trick that I did, click trick, whatever, send the same signal back out through the orange, which then allows you to kind of blend a complementary tone. Like, so what we're doing on the meso is getting the best possible tone we could that covers as many bases as we could, and then filling in some of the extra things that maybe are missing from the meso with the gym root. So then when we do actually reamp through the gym route, we can tab to transient, pull it back, and they line up perfectly and blend as opposed to, ha- as opposed to having some weird filtering, comb filtering, phasing. I don't know what could happen, but shitty sounding hollow guitar, which I've had in the past, and it's not nice, and it's easy to just double track. So anyway, that was the workaround. As for amps, sorry, as for cabinets, um, yes, we did take straight from the amp through the load box into Pro Tools and then used a cabinet impulse response via the plug-in world of sound or something. 
by Torpedo. Is it called Word of, World of Sound? Wall of Sound. Wall of Sound. Anyway, and use these impulse responses made by Ownhammer. There are so many goddamn impulse responses out there in the world. And I just did a lot of reading on them and listened to heaps of different demos. And by the sounds of it, I felt that the Ownhammer ones were the ones that sounded most like maybe the most like a real cab. I don't, I don't really know if I can qualify that statement at all. But anyway, those are the ones we chose. And we chose a Mesa and an Orange to complement the heads we were using. And they were good. It was, it was an interesting experience, but I really think that compared to the kind of tone we could get from an amp, a full amp sim, the combination of a tube head and an impulse response was like a pretty good way of being as um, analog as possible. So just an analog front end. It worked pretty well and allowed me to, you know, reamp at midnight and no one would get pissed off. So that was really awesome. Um, so that was one thing of prep. The other one was obviously the bass, which was DI'd. So I don't quite remember what I ended up using in the mix, but there we used the DI and then did the same thing, put a transient sound at the start and ran it out through a, a Sansamp VT bass pedal that one Razor Ray, who's filling in for us on the Winter Sun tour, actually uses as well. So that's cool to know. Um, that's a coincidence, by the way. Anyway, that sounds like an SVT in a pedal, which is pretty awesome. So we use that. That has an inbuilt speaker simulator on it. I toyed with the idea of using an impulse response for the bass, but no, nah, I just rolled with it as was. Um, I'm not the best at getting bass tones. I'm not the best at getting guitar tones, for God's sake. But I was reasonably happy with it. And I think Jim was reasonably happy because he got a lot of growl and a lot of jangle out of the strings, which I think was missing on the last album because we kind of didn't approach it that way during tracking. Uh, so this time during tracking, I made sure that everything we were doing was going to, you know, so even if we did end up using uh, amp sims or whatever, um, that there would be the, the right uh, starting place for that tone that he wanted to come out, if that makes sense. Yeah, anyway, and also I think I did like a distortion track, a clean DR track and a clean Sansamp track and those were ready for the mix. Uh, also, something that took a bloody long time was going through with Jesse all the patches on our um, strings orchestration sample pack, which is the East-West Quantum Leap Symphonic Orchestra pack, which has a bunch of different um, sections of the orchestra in it, obviously. And yeah, so that cello MIDI track, I would then bounce as a cello sampled track. So using her performance, all the notes you hear are how she played them when we tracked it. It's just triggering a sound. So yeah, went through, did that, took notes. I want this because there's, you know, multiple different, um, I guess, you know, there's a two cello patch, there's a four cello patch, there's a solo cello patch. So she would choose each thing. And in some cases, yeah, she thought she would want a harp, but she preferred the sound of something else. So yeah, anyway, took all the notes, went ahead and kind of, I guess we'll call it reamping, reamped that, triggered the samples, whatever, but to audio files. So then I didn't have to 
use the plug-in during the mix because my computer is a very basic iMac that I bought in 2013. I think it's actually a 2012 model. Yeah, it's got a bunch of RAM in it and I don't know, I'll check if it's a dual core or quad core about this Mac. Let's look at it. Oh, it just says, oh shit, it's a mid 2011 iMac. There you go. It's got a 2.5 gig Intel Core i5 processor, 20 gig of RAM. Um, and the internal drive is a spinning 5400 RPM drive and that's not optimum. So I was only running programs off there and running everything else off external drives that were spinning at 7200 RPM, which that's a helpful tip in itself. So one hard drive for all the sample packs and the impulses and blah, blah, blah. And the other hard drive to track all the audio too. And that takes a bit of the weight off the bottleneck that is the internal 5400 spinning SATA drive. Nerd stuff. Uh, anyway, back to the friggin' whatever. Rather than trying to trigger that shit live during the mix, we bounce it to stereo tracks as much as possible. So instead of having like 5,000 string tracks to deal with in the mix, I'd got them to like elements. So let's say a cello was at the start of the song and then there was maybe uh, some kind of other um, within that octave field set of instruments. Or maybe let's say the three cellos, I'd put that all on the same track. And if there was like a 50-piece orchestra and then towards the end it was a 70-piece orchestra, I'd put all that on the same track and kind of like vaguely volume match it. So I didn't have to deal with that during the mix. And I did that based on kind of the information that was in there. So like I said, if something only plays in a certain few octaves, that's what I'd group together or like a double bass or an, oh God, I can't think of another instrument, a contrabass. I'd put them all on the same track or violins and harps maybe um, because yeah, they sort of have a similar register or anyway, if that's making sense to you, that's what I did. Um. Yeah, and then any any punch-ins or any comping of vocals, let's say uh, Cabba did a verse and he did a particular take and then later on he decided that he wanted to retrack a certain section of it. I'd consolidate all that shit and so all of my tracks were all with the tone that I wanted on the album, with the performance that I wanted to be on the album, um, with all the instruments grouped together as much as possible. So then in the mix, I'd be dealing with only WAV files and no plugins to begin with. And um, no, you know, didn't have to do any editing or triggering during the actual mixing phase. So let's start there, mixing. Uh, set up a fresh session for each song. Uh, I've tried having a whole album inside one session before and that does not work for me. I don't like that one bit. So yeah, I start. I just picked a song because we were releasing Mantra and the song Spirit of Fire as film clips. There was a lot of pressure to have them mixed first because we were thinking we were going to record a film clip very soon. That ended up happening much later in January, but I focused on those two and those are pretty good because Mantra is a quick song and Spirit of Fire is a slower song with a lot of more open parts in it. So I thought those two would kind of, if I did a, a mix for each of those, then I could work from them based on what type of song 
the next track I was mixing. So if I was mixing a fast song, I'd sort of use Mantra as a template. If I was doing a brooding slower song, I'd use Dreams as a template. So yeah, went through, pretty much uh, panned everything how I wanted it, got the volumes all at the right level, sent you know all the guitars to one bus, balanced them within themselves, and then you know set the level of the bus. Um, against all the other buses so all the drums were bust to one track all the keys and shit were tracked to one track the piano sorry was separately to the strings sections that was to a bus so then then I was sort of approaching it like I only had to balance eight faders instead of 50 or whatever it was you know like bake, taking it down to as small uh, manageable elements as I could and yeah then from there started mixing and i think i learnt a lot from how i mixed but yeah i still did mix in solo a little bit in terms of like i'd isolate the drums and then get a full drum submix going how i'd want it to go right and then i'd bring up the guitars and i'd you know do some eqing of the of the orange and some eqing of the mesa and level them out and then balance that against the drums and blah, blah, blah. So I went back and forth between a lot of elements like that. And that was pretty much my approach. Uh, I think I'll be changing that approach a little bit, mainly because some stuff happened with, let's say, the bass and the drums where they were conflicting a little bit, especially in the low end. And I wasn't quite hearing it. My speakers are only... They're HS50 Yamaha speakers. They've got a five-inch woofer, so they don't really reproduce bass so well. And also my mix position was in the corner of a room, which is, you know, a no-no if you were to do a Google search. But that's all I had available to me. So I wasn't hearing a lot of these details. And I think that it, I may have picked things out by not being able to hear certain things, if that makes sense. If all the mix was going at the same time. So I think if I mixed in future, that's the way I'd approach it. But in this case, yeah, I did it the way I did it. And yeah, my general approach was to get everything so the levels were pretty rock solid. And I did that via compression and limiting, tried to just like lock down so the kick drum was a consistent volume throughout and the snare drum was as well. Bass was all just locked down Guitars is a lot easier because they're so compressed with the distortion. It's it's only really like the chugging parts that jump out at you. So I'd use like a bit of multiband compression to just um, duck the low end on the big chugs. And yeah, just took that really simple approach. Tried to not like create sounds so much because I felt that we'd already done that by having the tones sorted before we went into mix. Um, and the only things that really added were effects from there. So uh, some delay and reverb on all the vocals, different levels for different singers. And, you know, the lead would get more than the background. Um, it sort of applied a similar thing to like lead guitars with some, with some delays um, and a little bit of plate reverb maybe. And yeah, it kind of did that across the board. Um, it's still like, I don't know how it comes across, but it's still actually quite a dry mix. Um, I didn't go to town with the effects as much as I think maybe I would have liked to. Um, but there still is a lot of lush, lovely reverb in there and some cool little ear candy as well.
I didn't automate too much. That's something I would like to do more in the future before I even turn a single EQ on, for example. The reason for that is because if my goal is to just make it all like leveled and the right elements popping through at the right times, rather than sort of like hoping that, let's say, a guitar lead would do that for itself, um, I'd rather go through when it's just a bare bones balance and pan mix and get the automation sorted. So then I'm not relying on over compressing loud parts um, and under compressing soft parts. I can kind of just be more reasonable with my compression because the way I look at dynamics and uh, I wish you could stop me if I was getting too deep into this, but let's take a snare drum, right? If you're playing really slow on a snare and you're smashing the crap out of it, there's a lot more body of the drum comes through, but also a lot more crack as well. So oof, I don't actually know if, no, I haven't really looked into that. Probably shouldn't even be talking about this. Uh, but then when you do a blast, there's no rim shot. So you don't get as much crack, but the body is still pretty present and it kind of, it almost builds up. That's the way I see it. Um, but the, the problem with that is because there's no rim shot, then the actual cut through of the attack isn't, as much or the attack doesn't cut through as much is probably how I should say it. So what I'd be doing is trying to get the compressor at that point to grab all that shit and bring it up um, and then maybe automating it up in volume after the fact when I think a better approach because of course in the loud parts the compressor is working way harder and maybe is leaning towards over compressing the louder sections. Um, so what I'd do in future, if, if I automated the, let's say, blast beats up in volume a little bit, so it's a little bit closer, then the compressor wouldn't have to be doing as much work at any one point. Um, and if I wanted it to do more work on softer sections, I would then automate the controls of the compressor. Um, and in the case of double kicks, this was a big one for me. I didn't want to trigger. And then three quarters through the mix, I went, I'm losing some of those kicks. I can't hear them in certain parts. Like they're there. If you were just to isolate the drum submix, you hear it all. But because you don't hit quite as hard when you kick really fast, um, it doesn't, the attack doesn't cut through over the bass as much. So I did automate a little bit of volume around those, but I think I should have automated some more EQs and maybe even split it off onto a, a separate track and EQ'd it to kind of had the character of what the kick was, you know, in normal parts, what the actual sound I was driving for was. Anyway, that's all pretty fucking inside the music style um, complicated shit that I don't even really myself know how to explain or what I'm talking about. Um, because yeah, I'm learning this shit myself. Uh, but yeah, there are a few things I went through anyway. And I think that if I did have a trigger on earlier in the process, it may have made those um, sections sort of cut through a bit more. But yeah, by the time I tried to just tack it on at the last minute, it really sounded like I just tacked on a trigger and it sounded shitty. It didn't sound like it was a part of the drum mix at all. It's, it just sounded pasted over the top. So yeah, all of the drum sounds on there are completely organic and I want to keep doing that and just tackle my approach to mixing that a little bit in the future. Um, yeah, other, I mean, other things I kind of did, I guess, was a little bit of bus compression 
on the mix bus, not too much because I uh, knew I was sending it off to mastering, so I didn't want to destroy the life of it. I just wanted to gel all the elements together a bit. And yeah, anyway, long story short, that's how it happened. Um, so I bounced them all off onto stereo files and sent them to Al Smith for mastering. And yeah, he turned them around in a couple of days. Um, however, might have to pick his brain on how he did that. But yeah, did a great job. I think further leveled out the performance, like in terms of the dynamics of the mix. And um, yeah, made it just polished and nice and clean and nice and tight. So I think he did a really good job with the master. And we were all very happy with it. And the only actual notes on the mastering were more mixed notes. So, okay, the vocal's getting lost in this particular song. So then I'd actually go back to the mix and crank the vocal a little bit and then send it off to him. So, yeah, he did a great job. That's why we go to him. I encourage anyone to that has a project they want to do to go through Al because he has really good rates. Um, he's very friendly and very helpful and an all-around good guy. The other thing I like about Al and not to make this the Al podcast, but it's something that I've learned is that, yeah, sounds sounds are better created at the time, I guess, and performances are maybe better than editing or something. That, that's what I get. Like when we tracked with Al on Triumph and Beyond, he, he oh, and even with the drums on this album, he was like, you know, really wanting full takes and stuff. Whereas like sometimes I definitely used to coming from the demo world just like try and nail a part and then do another part but yeah you can hear punch-ins you can hear all this stuff and it doesn't sound natural and also is like a huge time waster so yeah I guess the tighter you are as a player and as a band and the more you know the songs you know then it is just a matter of getting everything sort of technically sorted out mics in the right spot or you know levels correct going into a preamp and then just letting the person perform and then that's it and then everything down the line becomes easier because you've done that hard work to begin with so yeah anyway whatever that's pretty much it in an hour-long nutshell uh, if you do want to know anything more about it uh, you can definitely hit us up at uh, info at claimathrone.com if you want any more specifics. I don't know what other means Cabba has been putting out there for you to contact us. Maybe comment on the Facebook or send us a Facebook message or whatever if you want to know any specifics. But yeah, it pretty much is as much of a bedroom recording as you can possibly get aside from the drums and the mastering, which... Um, yeah, we simply don't have the gear to do. I do have enough gear to do a drum recording, but uh, me being the drummer of the band um, and respecting my neighbours as well, I know how long this shit takes. I know how loud the stuff gets and I know how much interference from the outside world you can get in terms of like sound of a truck going by a house. You know, so I'd rather kind of pay the money and hire an engineer and hire a room that has equipment already and in the case of underground it saved our ass because i wasn't happy with the way my drum kit sounded the kick drum and the floor tom so you know they're a studio they've got gear and yeah unless you're running a professional 
you know, day-to-day recording or mixing studio at your house, you're really not going to have access to all that stuff. So while I do have a lot of gear, um, it's really only designed as a bare-bones solution to just get the job done for what my band needs to do. So anything additionally, I have to outsource. And I think that's a pretty huge tip for bands is that, look, if there's things you can't do yourself, and this is pretty common with home recording like, you know, you'll record your shit at home and send it off to mix. That's pretty standard or send it off to master. But let's say you're not happy with the way tracks are going down, just spend the money. Just find someone like Al that can help you out and is willing to do it. I know there are some guys out there who don't like, you know, oh, I don't I don't want to record an element of the album uh, for you. It, it's either I do the whole thing or nothing. But those guys... Um, uh, fewer and farer between and that's a whole kit and caboodle that comes with that too so if we were to do the whole thing with a uh, with an engineer at a studio we'd be paying studio rates from april to october and we just can't afford that so it works well doing everything at home as much as we possibly can it's also a lot more fun and it allows i think an element of stress to be removed not just financially but yeah, like it's it's pretty cool to say, you know, plan to record on a Saturday and then ring up and say, you know what, my dad's in town this weekend. I'm going to go hang out with him for the afternoon. We might get some tracking done in the evening. If not, is it cool We if we just leave it to the next day? And everyone's like, cool with it. Um, and that happens with other members of the band too. You know, life happens, man. And yeah, you need to be very flexible. And if you are going in the studio, my biggest advice is probably don't do it with a metal band like Claim the Throne. Uh, the reason for that is there's so much shit going on in the tracks that doing it in a traditional way isn't particularly feasible. Like to set up all of us on live instruments, I don't think is going to go down too well as opposed to if we were maybe a bit more of a slower um less slightly we're not tech but slightly less technical riff and drumming wise like we really lean towards the multi-tracking um way of recording because of that and when you are in a studio when you're multi-tracking you know you're playing every song through the amount of times of over dubs you've got if that makes sense so drums that's the album through once at least bass that's once Rhythm guitar, that's once. Rhythm guitar two, that's once. All the leads, that's once, etc., etc., etc. So studio time blows out massively. Whereas when you're in a band where it's music that you're all capable of, it's not super, super layered that you can just do in a single take with just a couple of overdubs. I think that leans towards renting a studio where you can be in and out in a week and record an album. Or... Uh, if you are doing multi-tracking in a recording studio, have your shit together. So Forged in, uh, Forged in Flame, Triumph and Beyond was done at Begurk in that manner. There were less songs, so there was probably half an hour of actual music on that album. Whereas on this album, it's an hour of music. So that, that's another factor. But yeah, Triumph and Beyond, we went in, we were all very well rehearsed. The songs were much more simple. Uh, and yeah, we just went in and tracked one by one by one. But yeah, to... You have to pay to do experimentation because experimentation takes time um, and all these extra things. You want to lay extra stuff. Uh, just 
it goes crazy. And I think if Claim of Throne for our last two albums had done that, it would be like a month straight in the studio and it would cost us so much money, which we truly don't have. Like we really don't as a band have that much money to record. So yeah, that's, that's a huge thing. Anyway, I really like recording like this. Don't know if you guys do, but I hope you got something out of this and I will shut up now. So yeah, I'll probably record something else in the next uh, couple of weeks just to put out there for you guys to listen to. Um, yeah, I hope you enjoyed this one and it wasn't too boring without Cabba being in the mix. I do actually have a couple of guests to fill in as co-hosts, um, one or two. So yeah, if they come through with the goods, then you'll have someone other than me shitting on in your ear about technical nerdery. So anyway, I best leave you guys with a song. Uh, I think... Last week, I played the demo to Mantra. Don't know if anyone picked up on that, but that was a really early version of what Mantra was, and it was pretty funny, I think. Some of those riffs don't exist anymore, so that was quite interesting. This week, I'm going to leave you with a song called Sandstorm. This was written really, really early in the piece, like before we'd even decided to do a new album. Uh, I would say early 2014, this thing was done and probably demoed around that time. Uh, then Cabba and Jim one day decided, yes, it is a Claim of Thrones song and they laid some vocals to it, which are pretty funny. Anyway, so what happened with the song in Studio Underground is we had 12 songs to track and walked out with 11 because we did run out of time. So at some point, I think on the second day, I'd probably tracked, let's say, six songs and there were a few more difficult or perhaps longer songs to do the next day. So we made a decision, look, what order are we going to do these in? So I didn't even know if I was going to get to a full 11 songs, let alone 12. So we kind of just did an order of preference thing and Sandstorm was last on the list and alas, it did not make it. So here's the demo to Sandstorm. Hope you enjoy it. And if you do really just love it so much, we might record it for you one day, but it's probably going to go in the bin. So yeah, this is an exclusive. See you later. Suck my <laughs> macho, macho. <laughs> 